Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode on the Behind the Mask podcast, we sit down with two-time Super Bowl champ, co-founder of the Players Coalition, Malcolm Jenkins. Specifically, we talk about policing. What does it look like to defund the police across the nation? Also, his second stint with the New Orleans Saints. And last but not least, Malcolm, how do you want your legacy to be after you're done? What is your end goal? Stay tuned. Let's go behind the mask. Welcome back to another edition of the Behind the Mask podcast. I am your host, Akio Spikes, joined alongside by my co-host, better known as the... Your favorite plus-size model, Tucson Reyes, in the building. Hey, and two, listen, man, it's, it's not many times that we come together and we technically, we have a two-time Super Bowl champ, three-time Pro Bowler, All-Pro, also known as co-founder of the Player Coalition. But before we bring him in, one thing is what I want to do say is this. It's imperative that we find people with substance, and that's what we take pride on here at the Behind the Mask podcast show. So take a look at this clip so you can see what substance really looks like. Well, balance in this pick, pass is picked off by Malcolm Jenkins. Jenkins down the sideline, inside the 30. Jenkins tight ropes his way into the end zone for a Saints touchdown. Without further ado, let's bring in my man Malcolm Jenkins. Where you at, homie? What's going on, guys? What's good? What's good? All is good, bruh. This offseason, man, it's been busy for a lot of people amongst the COVID-19 and everything. But catch yourself on some things. What you've been doing? What's been keeping your attention going? Man, I mean, you know, obviously all of the social unrest that's going on, the, the conversations and dialogue around, you know, policing, COVID-19, how it's, you know, affecting black lives and, and the black community. Uh, all of those things have been at the forefront of kind of my attention. But you know, I, on a more personal level, I've also been spending a lot of time, obviously, at home uh, with my kids, uh, really, you know, bonding with them, getting some girl dad time. Uh, but it's it's been one of those things. It's been a crazy year so far. And, uh, you know, it's definitely kept me busy for sure. Yeah. And you talked about uh, policing. One of the things that you wanted to always make sure you keep a close eye on is just understanding the narrative, what comes behind that. A lot of people, when you see, they talk about defund the police. Uh, own banners, it's own boxes, what people are writing out. When you see that, I, I truly think that it's a total, total, like, I, don't, I won't call it negligence, but it's a total misunderstanding of what they mean by defund the police because a lot of people feel like, well, if we don't have anybody to govern the bad people, then what are we going to do? Since you're knee deep in it, co-executive of the Players Coalition, co-founder, give us your thoughts or your strategy on defunding the police. Yeah, I, I think the, the term defund the police is a lot more uncomfortable uh, than the actual application of it. And I think a lot of people, when they learn about what it actually means, um, that, that they're really in line with the principles of it. What you're saying is we every city has a budget, right? And if you look at the majority of cities around the country, they're spending 30 to 40% of their city budget uh, on the police. And that's taken away from education, it's taken away from jobs, it's taken away from housing, from uh, health uh, services, all of these different things that are ailing our communities that uh, when invested in have proven to decrease crime. And so we're saying it doesn't work. And then you add on, you know, the, the violence and 
uh, the, the abuse of power and authority that we see in our police departments and people are asking for change. And so that's, that's comes in two ways. It comes from you know, a budgetary standpoint. How do you take those, that funds and, and you know, decrease the police budgets and put those into other things? So you invest into your schools, you invest into uh, infrastructure, you invest into a non-police uh, respondents corps that, that are trained to deal with uh, homelessness, uh, mental issues, that are trained to be able to deal with, with children in schools that can respond to domestic issues. Uh, these are all things that our police department right now are not trained to do. And we're asking them to do more than they are actually capable of. And if you ask any police chief, they would agree with that point. And so it's like, okay, well, let's push money and create uh, a task force of people who are uh, better suited to deal with the specific elements of our communities. Um, but then from a, from a budgetary standpoint, and I saw something the other day, it's like, well, what does it look like when you have officers who don't live in a community that come and they get paid by uh, tax dollars, right? So in my community, I'm, it's being over-policed, it's being brutalized, it's being over-criminalized, and it's coming out of my tax dollars. And then you take that money and go to the suburbs and you fund your schools, you fund your infrastructure, uh, and you take that money out of a community that already is lacking completely out. And so it's like, how do we make sure that the money uh, that is already being siphoned out of these communities goes back into making them safer? Because we, it's been proven that when you give people opportunity, you give people jobs, housing, they, it, it creates a safer community. Um, and so those are things that people need to start looking at when we say defund the police. And we want them to focus mainly on the application. We don't want you know, people with guns showing up to deal with a homeless issue or domestic violence or, uh, you know, something in schools. We want we want the police to focus on violent crimes. And right now you got about a 50 50 chance to get away with murder in almost any major city because they're not doing a great job of making arrests in violent crime. So we want them to be more efficient and focusing on those things that actually, um, you know, matter. And when it comes to the, uh, you know, violent stop. So it's it's two things changing changing the way that we uh, fund our cities by taking it away from these police departments in, in the way that it doesn't work, but also rethinking the way that policing functions in our society and, and reinvesting in, in different uh, task force that can deal with the specific needs of our citizens. And you talked about some of that violence um, down here in Atlanta. We've had a, a string of gun violence in New York, Chicago, several major cities in the country. That narrative of defunding the police came out, I want to say a month or so ago. But what do you say to the people that are like, you know what, if we defund the police, it's only going to be a direct correlation to the gun violence, to the things going on in our communities now? Yeah, uh, the gun violence happens anyway. You know, police, you don't, you call the police after the gun violence has already happened. So put, putting more money into policing doesn't stop gun violence. It never happens. In fact, you, like I said earlier, most times in these violent crimes, you have a 50-50 chance. Uh, in Philadelphia, I think it was a 40% chance uh, that they actually make an arrest. So 60% of the time, they you get away with it. And so we want them to be more efficient and more effective in that place, which means that we don't need them doing a ton of traffic stops, what they already do. We don't need them stop, uh, doing stop and frisk and searching for things that they're not finding. We need them focused on the violent crime and those things that so that we can feel safe and drive down gun violence. But when it comes to how do we service the community and make the community safer, it's pushing more opportunities 
uh, for people to make a living, for more people to work for themselves, to get an education, to get, have uh, equal housing. Those are things that directly drive down crime. And then we can have our police departments focus on the violent crime that nobody wants to see uh, in their community. And when you talk about push, it seems to be two different pushes when you talk about defunding the police. Uh, one is defunding the police, but the next one is procedural change. You know, changing the way that they were training, changing the way that they arrest people, understanding of hiring more diversity or having more diversity in the police station so they can be sensitive to certain areas, even if they're not from there to the point that you made. What do you think is the best way to go? Well, me personally, I think we 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 naturally think that policing is the solution. And I disagree with that notion. I think that we don't I think policing is the problem. And when we look at the history of policing and what it, how it functions, people talk about the, the policing system is broken. And I'm like, it's not broken. It's working the way that it is designed, uh, the way that it was designed. And so we need to really change completely the way that we, that we even think about policing. So it's not necessarily about, you know, how do we, how do we train our officers to, uh, you know, have implicit bias? How do we train them to de-escalate? It's almost impossible to de-escalate a situation when you bring a gun into it. And so it's like, no, let them do what they're trained to do, trained to make arrests and hope and stop violent crimes. Let's create another task force who is trained to do those things that we need to respond to these specific needs that, that our police department, you know, don't we don't need to train them to do de-escalation or all those things. We have people already in place and services in place. We need to fund those and let them respond to the specific needs of the community. One of the things that Tequil actually schooled me to was the police unions. They're often tasked with the uh, with changing the narrative of an officer if they've committed a crime or done something wrong, even if they know they're in the wrong, like they're representing them regardless. So how do we impact change with the police union? Because it starts there as well, as they're ultimately just supporting police when things happen in a negative nature. Yeah, so it's three people or three kind of levels of government that we need to put pressure on when it comes to policing. Uh, the number one is the mayor, because the mayor in most cities uh, elects the p police chief. They also set the budget for the city and they negotiate the contracts with these unions. And to your point, the union's job is to protect officers. So they're going to do what they do, similar to how the, the NFLPA, you know, represents its players in, in their best interest. But the city and the mayor must negotiate fair contracts that represent the best or the, or the uh, with the interests of the community in mind, because it almost makes it they can even most of these contracts, you can fire an officer for doing something wrong. But because of that contract, they get, they go into arbitration, they get the job back and get back pay for the time that they missed. And so it almost makes it impossible for them to be even held accountable because of these contracts. So we need to pay attention to the mayors and what they're doing. The second group is going to be the city council because they approve the budget. And so similar to what happened here in Philadelphia, uh, the budget was proposed by the mayor to have a $14 million increase that was going to go to policing while every other you know, system was going to stay flat. And the, the city council voted against it and shut that down. So they have the power to change the budgetary part. But when it comes to also holding police accountable, not only just to get fired, but following criminal charges against them, that's going to come from prosecutors. And most times the district attorney is an elected official. And that's one of those positions that we oftentimes don't talk about or don't participate in voting. And they've, you know, most of them hold their chair for years and, and nobody, you know, kind of pays attention to them. We have to draw, you know, 
make sure that we are voting and paying attention, holding them accountable because they are the ones who can uh, prosecute officers who can actually uh, file criminal charges when they do abuse their power, when they do, you know, uh, lie on people and falsify information and reports. When they go and kill somebody, that is who can actually hold them criminally uh, accountable. So it seems like the pressure needs to be put across the board from the police chief, the mayor, prosecutor, DA, attorney general, whoever is being voted into office. But how important is it for citizens to really realize, like, it's not just every four years to go out and vote. Every election that comes up in your in your community, that's when you need to get out. And if you want to impact change, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the times we get caught up in, as we should, we get caught up in the presidential election and what is happening nationally. When, when in reality, the most things that are going to affect us are from the state and local level. Um, and oftentimes we don't pay attention to that down ballot. And those are the people who make the laws and, and make decisions that directly impact you. And so that's the, the biggest thing, you know, I've been pushing people to do is just to pay attention to all of those uh, local, you know, elections. Who, who's, you know, the district attorney? Who's in city council? Who's your police chief? And know, you know, when those cycles are coming. You know, Philadelphia, they got they have to renegotiate their contract with the uh, police union, uh, I think, this December. And so people need to be paying attention and putting pressure on the mayor to make sure that he negotiates that in the best interest of the citizens. Bro, I appreciate you using your platform and and making sure that everybody is aware of how they can affect change or be a part of change. One of the things that that came up that we all saw was that you're now a CNN contributor. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how much on an often basis, but it would be good to have your take on that, on takes on social injustice. Deshaun Jackson recently made some comments about uh, the Jewish population from the anti-Semitic. And people exploded. You know, everybody had their strong opinions. Uh, but you came out and you kind of just told everybody to pump the brakes. Your words were, we can honor the Jewish heritage and trauma while staying focused on what matters. Jewish people aren't our problem. And we are not theirs. Let's not lose focus on what's the problem, what the problem truly is. And that's black lives still don't matter in this country. Push the energy towards arresting the killers of Breonna Taylor. Uh, do you care to give more insight on that? Because I felt like that was such a powerful statement to keep. It's not being insensitive, but it's just stating the true facts, black and white, of what we're going through throughout this current climate. Yeah, and the message is, is simple. Is you know, as you sit back and kind of you know, and Deshaun's you know comments were you know just wrong, flat out, you know, there's no, no justification, no excuses for that. Um, but, you know, as I sat back and just kind of watched how people respond to it, um, there was a lot of like fighting between the Jewish community and, and black voices. And I'm like, we're not each other's enemy. We got common backgrounds. We got common uh, interests. We got common histories. The, the focus right now is on systemic racism. How do we attack systems? Because the systems are taking people's lives. Like I get it, we can we can we can fight about who says what, but when if we're fighting against, you know, hate speech, um, then we're going to be fighting against everybody. And so for me, it's like, how do we stay focused on the, on what we can actually change right now? Somebody making a mistake is is wrong. Y'all gonna light them up, and you know, Twitter did what they do as they should. But when it comes to this entire movement, 
we can't even afford to be distracted um, by by things that don't get us to the goal. And the goal is to eradicate systemic racism, knowing that when we do things for black people, it goes across the board for everybody. Because we oftentimes are in any system you look at are the most brutalized, the most marginalized, the most victimized. And so when we raise that floor, it helps everybody. And so it's at this moment in time, it's so important. I think this is such a big movement and moment in history that we cannot afford to let it slip by fighting against people who have the same interests. It felt like they, a lot of people had that same interest. Some of my board members who are Jewish, I've seen the posts on Facebook. Some of them were saying that our silence is now deafening. So it was, it was kind of weird for me because I, it took me a while to actually get into what Deshaun Jackson said, but how do you feel when people are now saying that to us? Like now you guys silence is deafening. Well, I, you know, I think there's a difference and I want to be very sensitive um, about it because we're talking about, you know, protecting uh, a legacy and a history um, and a fight for lives right now. Um, and so I, you know, I try not to be insensitive, but for myself, um, I did what I expect other people to do. You know, I sat back and listened for a minute because oftentimes it's not, it's not our place to just jump in front of um, any kind of movement or, or any, uh, you know, subject and just start to blare things. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know a lot about the Jewish plight. I know about the Holocaust, but I don't really know. And so what I did was I sat back and I listened. I called a bunch of friends. I got, you know, Jewish people on my foundation board. I have Jewish friends that I do business with that I, you know, that I know. And I asked them, you know, tell me what's going on. What were your, what, what were your uh, thoughts on DJ's comments, you know, and we had those dialogues, the same dialogue that we're asking, you know, people to have, you know, with, with kind of the black plight. Um, but at the end of the day, my priorities are always going to be this movement for black lives because that's where I come from. That's my community. And that is the house that is currently on fire and has been on fire for over 400 years in this country. And right now there's an opportunity to actually move the needle and I will not lose focus on that. Bro, I, I think it's it's amazing how your focus is so me and two, we talk about it all the time. We gotta have Hawkeye focus, playing the game, leading up to a 16 game season, if you're fortunate enough to go to the playoffs. Uh, your focus is unparalleled when you look at it across the board. With all of what you have been going through and what's been going on, how have you been able to stay focused just on the game itself? that allows you to have the platform that you have? You mean football? Just football, yeah. Man, so see, football is like my safe space. That's that's like the easy part. Like I tell people all the time that the easiest part of the year for me is training camp. All I got to do is wake up, play ball, eat, go to sleep, and do it over again, right? Where the off season is when, you know, I got all of these other, you know, balls I'm trying to keep in the air and, and things that I'm doing, but you know, football to me is that outlet. It's that ability to be able to, you know, to physically exhaust yourself, to kind of get that energy out, those frustrations out, but play the game that I've loved to play since I was in the third grade. Um, and so for me, uh, it's been really easy to focus on ball. Obviously, it takes a lot of time management. Uh, it takes, uh, I have a great team around me that help me balance all of these different things. Um, but for me, football is really that outlet for me to, to let loose, you know, all these things. I keep my composure a lot when it comes to, uh, the things that we're dealing with in our society. 
and the football fields where I'm able to let that out. And training camp is right around the corner. Um, league still has some uncertainty going on. They're talking about banning jersey swaps at the end of the game. Guys got to stay six feet away from each other, even though they've just for 60 minutes been wrestling on a football field, running up and down a football field. Um, do you still have reservations about going into the season, knowing that the league is not 100% direct in terms of their plan moving forward? Well, you know, I'm on the executive committee with uh, the PA, so I've been in these conversations, uh, and there's still things that are that are being negotiated with, you know, from all the way from preseason games to some of the protocols to the protections that we need uh, for players. But our number one priority is we understand we're not going to be able to eliminate risk and it's not going to be 100% safe. But how do we mitigate as much risk as possible, knowing that the players are the ones taking 100% of the risk? So how do we make sure that we have protections for guys if they do get sick? How do we make sure that the protocols are as tight as they can be uh, to make sure that we el- limit, you know, how many guys can get sick at once? But in our game, once we step on the field, our game is our game. And so, you know, there's going to be some exposure. There's no way around that. Um, but And I think it's I think guys are antsy. And I think our protocols and all of these things are probably going to change as the year goes on, as things change in society. We're watching, you know, cases go up kind of all around the country. That's very concerning. Um, but there's still a lot to be done in the next few weeks before we are set to to report. And, and hopefully uh, we can find a place where their guys feel comfortable enough to go back. Um, but that's yet to be seen. It's, it's so weird to me. And Takeo and I talked about this. But, like, if you're a rookie DB coming out of Ohio State and you play Malcolm Jenkins in the Saints, at the end of the game, you watch this man through your college with you, through the league. How are you not going to go out there and ask for his jersey at the end of the game? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest. It's, there's a lot more things I'm worried about than swapping jerseys this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can send you an email, you know what I mean? Really, I'm, not, I'm barely trying to tackle anybody. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, football is such a traditional game, right? Like, yeah. we're so used to doing the same things over and over and over. That is really hard to imagine, you know, uh, bending football to COVID. But it's something that we're going to have to get used to. You know, playing without fans is the guys can't even like wrap their mind around that because we feed so much off of the crowd. But we're going to have to do that. You know, it's like a scrimmage, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, we're going to see how much guys love the game because <laughs> it's going to be just for the love of the game and obviously, you know, paycheck. No doubt, no doubt. You gotta, you gotta give it there, man. But salute to everything you do on the field, also off the field. Talk about uh, your foundation and how can people support. Yeah, so the Malcolm Jenkins Foundation. This is our. We we just celebrated our our ten year anniversary in June. Um, man, been doing work in um, started in New Orleans in 2010, and since then we've been serving all of the states that I've called home. So New Jersey, where I'm from, Ohio, where I went to Ohio State. Louisiana and Pennsylvania, uh, obviously where I've been with the Eagles and the Saints. Um, and it's just been the impact that, you know, we've been able to have, I think has just been phenomenal between scholarships to uh, food drives to uh, STEM camps and, and, and different resources of football camp. But with COVID, you know, hit, we've had to adjust and really pivot, um, you know, how we service our communities because we can't do the face to face anymore. Um, and so we've transitioned to how do we create a digital and virtual experience 
Uh, so we launched uh, what we call our Power Pathways. We're, we're uh, building out online curriculums to help people, um, you know, on different career paths, people who are going the non-traditional route who may not go to college. Here are some of the, the, the hard skills and soft skills you may need uh, to, to be able to be employed and, and get employed in a you know, COVID kind of reality. So it's things as simple as, you know, PowerPoint, MailChimp, and all of these kind of online Zooms and these different platforms that everybody's trying to uh, navigate through. But also uh, being able to tell stories of people who went the non-traditional route and be able to showcase those examples of how you can still create opportunities for yourself um, by just using the skills you have, whether it's, you know, um, you know, chefs and people who become content creators or uh, who go on to work for themselves. There's so many different examples. And in my uh, foundation, I've based it all around experiences because I know I'm one of those people. Once I see somebody else do it and I know that it, is, it can be accomplished, like my talent and, and everything else takes over. And oftentimes our kids get stuck in a, a bubble where the only things they see, you know, are, uh, you know, negative, where this or the only success they see is the guy who's an athlete or who's an entertainer or who's a drug dealer. And then knows that's the only way that they can imagine to get out. But once you show them another way that there's options, you take them out of those environments, the natural talent that they have takes over. And so this is what we're trying to do, you know, and, and reach more kids, obviously, because we're doing it on a virtual platform that, that um, you know, kids can log on to and get access to the curriculum. I'm a firm believer in you can't be what you can't see, especially when you're out on the streets and you're doing work, you're giving back, uh, showing them this is what you could be. Uh, but I want to ask you, after being a free agent, did you know, how soon did you know that you were going back to New Orleans where your professional career started? Yeah, I knew pretty soon. Uh, it, it, they called pretty much the next day uh, or probably that same day, to be honest. Uh, they were talking to my agent. I, you know, and, and, and to be honest, you know, I knew if I wasn't going to be in Philly, then New Orleans is really the only other place I wanted to be. Uh, this is year 12 for me, and I'm not really trying to move my family around and, and or be away from my family at an extended uh, period of time. So being able to go back to New Orleans was, was you know, really, you know, a blessing. It lined up, you know, perfect uh, for me. And so I'm excited to get back there. Obviously, they got a really, really good team uh, that I'm joining back into. The team is a little bit a lot a bit different than it was when I was there six years ago. You're an old head now, bro. Yeah. You're an old head. <laughs> yeah, OG. yeah. You know, so it's but I'm but I'm but I'm excited, man. I think, you know, myself and a couple other additions that they had this year, uh, you know, hopefully will be just that that little bit that this team is needed to get over that edge and hopefully get that Lombardi. And another one, right? How many yeah. with two going on three? Yeah, trying to <laughs> trying to get a third, you know? No doubt, no doubt. That's, that's amazing, man. Let me ask you this. I was in New Orleans. I spent a little bit of time there at the beginning of my career, but uh, very culturally diverse city. Food is amazing. I say one of the best uh, cities for food in America. What's your favorite food eatery down there in New Orleans, if you have one? Uh, you know, I mean, I think my favorite, if, if, I, if I'm there just for a day, I'm probably going to get some crawfish or some charboiled oysters. Like I can't leave the city without getting one of those two. I can't eat either one. <laughs> that's 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 a kill. eats all that uh, you know, eclectic food. Eclectic? That's like a delicacy. That like, what you mean? Nah, Bruh, I mean I this is, 
Now, this the same dude who would go to restaurants and order chicken in different ways. <laughs> Baked chicken, fried chicken, chicken fingers, chicken strips. Chicken fricassee, whatever. Uh, he, <laughs> right, right. The bubble, was yeah, the bubble gum? <laughs> yeah, man. But before we let you get out of here, man, we know you're one of the best family men that we've seen come across the league. Just exemplifying what you stand for, businessman. Uh, going into your 12th year in the NFL, you got the rings, several charitable initiatives that you already started, co-founder of the Player Coalition. When it's all said and done, what do you want your Malcolm Jenkins story or how do you want your Malcolm Jenkins story to be told? Man, when it's all said and done, I think I want to be remembered by the impact that I had. Was I able to change the game? Was I able to change the, the environments around me? So whether it was a locker room, the game, the team, the city, the country, um, anything that I touch, I want to have an impact on the culture around me. Um, and I'm still working on that. And uh, But I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of work to be done, a lot of room to do that. And I see that opportunity uh, to bring others along with me. And I think that is going to be, more of my legacy than anything, not just how far I went, but how many people, you know, uh, did I bring along with me and how much impact did I have uh, on the people around me and the environment around me? I think that's one of the most amazing things about you and, and the trajectory of your career. People may not remember your last football snap, but they will remember how you impacted and affected their lives off the field. So no you're on the right path. So salute, brother. I appreciate you. Salute, man. We appreciate the time, Malcolm. If we can help you anytime, bro, you definitely reach out and let us know. We always do the same and support great substance. No doubt. I appreciate you, brother. Right on, bro. All right. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? Um, a home security system that's so complicated and too complicated that you never use it. That's exactly the type of system Simply Safe has spent the decade fighting against. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7. It's easy. Once you order online, you open the box, pick up the sensors, place the sensors, plug it in, and now your home is protected around the clock 24/7. It's that simple. Bottom line is this. Head to simplysafe.com/team and get free shipping and a 60-day money back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash team. It feels good, but imagine how good you will feel when you fear less. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Behind the Mask podcast as Takeo and I sat down with Super Bowl champion Malcolm Jenkins. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, engage with us, leave a comment, and follow us on social media at the BTM podcast. And remember, on the Behind the Mask podcast, there's only one rule. There are no rules. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.